this, that prior to Darby, you will search in vain to find any theologian who embraced a dispensational pre-trib rapture of the church. You will not find anyone. You will not find a single soul. It has been documented. You will not find anyone who believed in the idea that prior to a seven-year tribulation period, the church will be taken out of tribulation and and then come back with Christ at the end of the tribulation. That is not found anywhere in historic Christianity. It was something that was somehow taught by Edward Irving a little bit and then adopted by uh, John Nelson Darby who modified it. Now you will find many men throughout history that embrace what is known as premillennialism. Premillennialism simply means pre before the millennium. They believe that Jesus Christ would actually physically return prior to a thousand year reign upon the earth. There are many men that believe that, but not a single one of them embraced a pre-tribulational coming of Christ as well, as Darby sees it. Today, the vast majority of Baptists, brethren, Pentecostals, and independents and Bible churches embrace the secret pre-trib rapture of the church. And why is that? Because it has been popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible and by other Bible teachers. And as I said, it is a recent teaching. The scriptures that they normally run to to claim that it, this is taught in Scripture is John 14, 1 through 3. They go to that passage. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so they say, there you have it. Jesus is coming to receive His church. They say, that's the rapture of the church. Is that really what Jesus is saying? 1 Corinthians 15, 51-57, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. This corruptible is going to put on incorruption. This mortal is going to put on immortality, and death will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And they say, this is the rapture of the church. When Jesus comes, He will transform us in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, and that will take place just prior to the tribulation. They also go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, and I want you to turn there with me now to look at this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13-18 is perhaps the passage that is used the most to prove this doctrine of the secret rapture of the church. And 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, and we'll begin reading at verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And they normally end the reading there. 
But look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So these are the verses, John 14, 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, that they run to as the rapture passages. And they said, there it is, Pastor. There's the rapture. Christ is going to come in the clouds. He's going to take his church out, and then he'll come back seven years later. There's one problem. That is not what these verses are saying. If you actually look at the word, look with me at verse number 15. I think this will be helpful to you. In verse number 15, I want you to notice the similarity in what is said here with what is also spoken by our Lord in Matthew chapter number 24. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them that are asleep. That word for coming there is a Greek word parousia. And that's going to be significant in just a moment. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead shall be risen first, and they that are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, and so forth. So notice that there is a very strong connection here with what Jesus actually teaches about His second coming. I submit to you that these passages that we have looked at, uh, that we have spoken of in John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, have nothing to do with a pre-tribulational rapture, but have everything to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not coming back in the future two times. He's coming back one time. Just as He came one time to earth, He will come back one more time in the future, not two times in the future. There's not two comings of Christ in the future. There's only one. And I want you to hold your finger there in 1 Thessalonians 4 and turn back with me to Matthew chapter number 24. Look with me at Matthew chapter number 4. Now remember... The Greek word that Paul used here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we that are alive and remain unto the coming, the parousia of the Lord. Now notice in Matthew chapter number 24 and verse number 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? and the end of the world. That word for coming there is the exact same Greek word that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. So I take it that he is referring to the exact same event. So they are asking the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter number 24, what are the signs that are going to indicate your coming, your parousia? Notice this word is used again in Matthew 24, verse 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what that is? 
When you're outside at nighttime and there is a thunderstorm and there is lightning and when lightning strikes through the sky, guess what? You can see from one end of the earth to the other. You know what this is saying? That it means that when Jesus comes, it will something is something that will seen by everyone. And as someone has properly said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, is the loudest verses in all the Bible. You have the shout of the Lord, you have the voice of the archangel, you have the trumpet of God, and we are to suppose that this is something secret that no one will hear and no one will know of? This is absurd. This is obscene. Why? Well, how, how is this possible? Oh no, this is describing to us the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 is describing the second coming of Jesus Christ when He comes to judge the righteous and the wicked on that last and final day. Look with me in Matthew 24. In verse number 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. Did we read something about the great sound of a trumpet? In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, I think we did. Did we read something about angels coming? Oh yes we did. And they shall gather together as elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what we have described to us in Matthew 24 is simply the same event described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. Those that are alive and remain through a time of apostasy and, and tribulation in the future, whatever, how long that time might be, but those that endure through that, the Lord will come the second time with an archangel, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet, and He will come and judge the righteous and the wicked on that final day. This is what we're finding here in this passage. Matthew 24 makes that clear. And this word, if you just look up that Greek word, parousia, and just study it through your Bible, you will find again and again and again that this is the case. Look with me now at 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, Paul in speaking in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the great chapter on the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, notice with me in verse number 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at His coming. There's a very same Greek word, parousia. Lord, where, what is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of the second coming of Christ? So this is not speaking of the rapture, per se, a secret rapture. The idea of believers being caught up to the Lord, that is true, but that's going to take place at the second coming. It is not a separate event distinct from the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not, again, two comings of Christ. There's one coming of Christ. It will take place at that great and final day. Notice he said that Christ is the firstfruits afterward, they that are Christ are just coming. Then notice this, verse number 24, then cometh the end. Guess what happens when Jesus comes back? It's the end. The end of time as we know it. 
There is no future, as it were, millennial kingdom in which Christ is going to be ruling and reigning on earth, as it were. I know there's some men that believe that, but I, I think this verse indicates that that is not what's going to be. When Jesus Christ comes and He returns, it is final judgment day. The door is shut. No one can now enter in. They stand at the door and knock, but they will be cast into outer darkness. There is no second opportunity when Jesus Christ returns. When He comes, it is the end. The end of time as we know it. And the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus returns at His final judgment day, He will resurrect both the righteous and the wicked on that final day. He will judge them on that final day. And He will create the new heavens and the new earth, and we will spend eternity with Him. Revelation 1, 7 says that when He returns, every eye will see Him. So, one of the reasons why I'm not a dispensationalist is the so-called secret rapture of the church. It's not something that is here contained in the Word of God. If that is your conviction, that is okay. Uh, you're, you're entitled to believe that. But I believe it is something that is not contained in the Word of God and something that is inconsistent with the Scripture. Fourthly, why I'm not a dispensationalist? Because they set forth different ways of salvation. They see seven dispensations as I had mentioned. Dispensation of innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, millennial kingdom. And they all believe that in, during each one of these dispensations, periods of time in history, mankind is saved differently. You maybe even have heard that under the Old Testament, during the time of law, that man was saved by keeping the law of Moses. Now I want to ask you a question. Can any man perfectly keep the law of Moses? No. Then how could anyone be saved by keeping the law? Oh, well, the Lord just understood the intent of their heart. They just had a desire to keep the law. My friend, we are on dangerous ground. When we begin to say that God saved people differently, even I have a dispensational friend that believes that people will even be saved differently during a seven-year tribulation period. He believes that they will be saved differently than they will be saved by law. He believes that they will even be saved differently during a 1,000 literal year reign of Christ upon the earth. They will be saved differently. My friend, the Apostle Paul said, did he not in Galatians 1, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which I preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let the anathema of God rest upon him. There's only one gospel. There's only one gospel message, and it is the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to that great message. Everything in the New Testament points back to that great action, that great event, that great redemptive act that took place upon Calvary. And that is a message we proclaim. This idea of different modes of salvation is clearly seen in the Schofield Reference Bible. On his note on John 1.17, he says this, A dispensation... Uh, as a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. Now that's an amazing thing. So Schofield said grace begins with the death of Christ. So there is no grace prior to uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. Was there no grace that was given? That's what he's indicating here. He says the point of testing is no longer legal obedience as a condition of salvation. But acceptance and rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. Now that's significant. 
He said the point of testing under grace since Jesus died is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation. Now that's dangerous. No one has ever been saved by legal obedience to the law. And he says, but exception in rejection of Christ with good works is a fruit of salvation. So what he is essentially saying is that people under law were saved by legal obedience to the law, and their good works earned them and merited them their salvation. Now that's dangerous. No one is ever saved by works, but this is what is being taught in the dispensational system. And to close, the last reason why I reject dispensationalism is their extravagant interpretation of the book of the Revelation. You know, they claim to take the Bible literally, and this is the appeal to dispensationalism. We take the Bible literally. Everything, every word in the Bible is literal. Well, do they, I want to ask that person a question. When Jesus said, I am the door, do you take that literally? Do you really believe that Jesus is a door? When Jesus said, uh, when Jesus said, I am the vine, do you really believe that Jesus is a vine? I mean, really, we need to use common sense here. And many times they claim to be literal, but many times they go way beyond. For example, take Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. When he goes to the book of the Revelation, he says that various things that are taking place are helicopters and bombs and bazookas and all this warfare. You know what that is? This is just a bunch of hogwash. It's a reading between the lines. It's reading something into the text that is not there. You know, for example, Revelation 13. Uh, 13 through 14, 1, that speaks about the mark of the beast. Many people have debated what the mark of the beast is, and they have debated that and gone back and forth, back and forth, and they say it's going to be a literal mark and a literal hand and a literal forehead. And we have all heard that. And, but they don't deal with chapter 14 and verse 1 that speaks about the believer with the seal of God upon his head and upon his forehead. They will say that this mark of the Antichrist is a literal mark. But then you ask them, well, what about this mark that God places upon the believer? They have no response. They don't know how to respond. They say, well, they will somehow just be, God will just spiritually uh, watch over them with angels. How come they take one part literally and they reject the other uh, literal interpretation? I want you to now just turn with me in closing here just to Revelation chapter number 1 and verse number 1. You know, I, I have had so many people come to me thinking they have this insight on the book of Revelation that they just know. Oh, pastor, did you not see on the news such and such happening? And man, this person is lining up to be the Antichrist. This person is lining up to, to give the mark of the beast. This system is arising as a mark of the beast. And they take the book of the Revelation so literally... There's a problem with that. John, writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said not to take it that way. Notice with me in Revelation 1 and verse number 1. This is the key to interpreting and unlocking the truth that is contained in the book of the Revelation. Revelation. 
He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servant things which must surely come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Notice, this was signified to him. The word to signify means to be made known by signs and symbols. So do you know what John received? He received, this is a book, the book of the Revelation is a book of signs and symbols. Now if you know anything about Bible interpretation, you know that you do not take a sign or a symbol literally. A sign and a symbol points to something greater than itself. And if you read the book of the Revelation and you have a good marginal reference Bible, you will find the book of the Revelation has more allusion back to the Old Testament than any other book of the New Testament, even more than Hebrews. If you are going to understand the book of the Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. And I'm not just talking about one book of the Old Testament. I'm talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. You need to be familiar with the Old Testament, especially the prophets and the minor prophets. Because allusion is made to it again and again and again. So you need to ask yourself, when you read the book of the Revelation, am I taking this literally? Because that's not what John intended it to be taken as. He intended the book to be taken as signs and symbols that point to something greater. The question is, what are they pointing to? And that's where the debate begins. That's where we begin to begin to have questions about these various things. So, why am I not a dispensationalist? I'm not a dispensationalist because they deny the unity of the people of God. It is a recent teaching, does not go back to the Reformation and back to the early church. I am not a dispensationalist because of the so-called secret rapture of the church. It is not found in the Bible, but rather it is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm not a dispensationalist because they set forth different ways of salvation. And I'm not a dispensationalist because of their extravagant and literal interpretation of Scripture that is actually symbolical, and they do not take it correctly. So, so well, how does this apply to me? You say, well, Pastor, th- this has been a Bible study. How does this really apply to me? It applies to you greatly. So, well, how does it apply to me? Because it, the way that you view the end... The way that you view the future unfolding of what will take place in the future will play the role in which you live today. So the way that you view the future will greatly affect the way you live today. It will greatly affect the way that you view things going on in our world today. It will even greatly affect your view of this upcoming election. You know, it will even view the way that you view the election within our state. The way that you view the end has a way of influencing your entire life. If you believe that the world is simply going to hell in a handbasket and there is no hope, then you're going to be a miserable person, really. That's going to be, that's going to affect your life if that's what you really believe. Or it may drive you to try to share the gospel more with people. I pray that it does. Uh, But the way that you view the end is going to affect the way you live your life. Also, when you begin to see the unity of the people of God from both Old and New Testament, 
You begin to see the promises in the Old Testament are not just for Israel, they're for you. You know, someone has said, and I have heard it said, and I think it is said incorrectly, the Bible, everything in the Bible is, has been written for me, but has not been written to me. That is an improper statement. Everything in the Bible has been written to you because you are the Israel of God. You are God's people. The promises that God gave the children of Israel in the Old Testament are your promises because you are one with the people of God. He, God has done this marvelous work in sending His Son, uniting you together. But if you believe in this discontinuity, you will have to disregard the Old Testament and not embrace the promises there contained. And you have to say, this is for a future nation, ethnic state of Israel. And you will not embrace them as your own. So I pray that this has been helpful and that it will make you think and meditate upon these things. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for these truths of the scriptures. I pray that what I've said has been helpful, that God it has uh, started people's minds and thinking and meditating upon these things, that maybe they are things that they have never heard before. And immediately their hearts and minds reject them because it's something they have never heard, and that's good, Lord, that that is what happens. But God, I pray that they would consider it. He that answereth a matter before he hears it is a fool. And so, God, I pray that we would consider the matter, that we would meditate upon it, and we would ask ourselves the question, could it be that what was said today is correct? And if it is, how do I bring it and apply it to my life and embrace these truths as my own? So, God, we pray that you'd be with us to meet again, would you allow your presence to guide us and be with us throughout the week? For we ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.